Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. So here we go. This is this is actually like the 11th message that we've done on this of this book of the Bible. It's it's taken us through a lot of different topics and a lot of variety, but it's it's been wonderful. It's been challenging, and this week this week was especially challenging for me. I would say, um, just you know, as needs in the community were kind of flaring up this week, it's my joy. I love being called upon to help people to uh, to grieve and to to cope with difficult situations. But at the same time, when my heart is is divided, and I'm my, my heart's over here with this group of people who are going through tough times, it was hard to, to concentrate this week on what the message was supposed to be. So I, I'm, I'm going to be just as surprised as you are at what I'm going to say today, to be honest. <laughs> so bear with me if that's all right. Just as a quick review here, because this is, this is pertinent to what we're going to be talking about today. Back in chapter 8, we started with a question about whether or not the Corinthian Christians were allowed to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. That's actually where chapters 8, 9, and 10 we're all based off of. That was the, the topic. So Paul taught these people that, yes, they could eat meat that was sacrificed to idols because an idol is nothing. The idol has no power to make meat spiritually contaminated. However, if eating meat would violate the conscience of a brother or sister in Christ, then don't do it. There was that whole principle about caring for each other in the way that we live our lives. That was very important. Then in chapter 9, Last week, Paul used himself and his calling to be an apostle as an example of what it means to give up what we may say are our rights or know we are entitled to because he cared more about someone else. He gave up his rights as an apostle and he ministered to the Corinthians at his own expense because he was so sure and devoted to the calling of Christ in his life. So here in chapter 10, Paul is going to wrap up this whole argument about that started with meat sacrifice to idols by talking head on about idolatry in general. You know, and I usually I haven't done this in the series, but for some reason this morning, I just got a sense that I should. I want to read all of chapter 10 and then we're going to, and then we're going to start working through it. <clears throat> I don't have it on the screen because this is kind of a last minute thing. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, that's cool. If you want to listen, that's, just as cool. So 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the age has come. So if you think that you are standing firm, 
Be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the, in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to you go, eat whatever is put in front of you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of, the, of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Gentiles, or the church of God. Even as, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So if we look here at verses 1 to 5, I'm just going to put them up on the screen here, part of it anyway. What we see here at the very beginning of this passage is that Paul is helping us to remember the Israelites and their experience with God. It's good for us to look back and understand lessons that we can learn today from what people have gone through already. God delivered the, the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and through 40 years of wandering in the desert, he provided food and water for them through his servant Moses. But even after those close experiences with God, the Israelites still sinned against God, and many didn't make it to the promised land. They turned to idols and they worshipped them instead of worshipping God during those years. The bottom line is that the people who were saved by God became unfaithful to him, which is a, a sad thing to endure. In verses 6 to 10, I'm going to highlight just verse uh, 7 and 8 here, and then I'll talk about those for a moment. So 7 says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. I'll tell you why I'm going to highlight those verses here in just a moment. The basic message in, in this section that Paul is saying is, remember the Israelites? Remember just what we talked about, how they walked with God, yet God was not happy with them? 
We need to understand what they went through so that we don't make the same mistakes that they did. Don't turn and, and sin against God, the God who knows you and the God who loves you. Because even though there's grace, even though there's mercy and forgiveness and God is a God of love, there still are consequences when we make a willing decision to turn our backs on him. So I think that verses 7 and 8 are key to the understanding of this, of this passage because Paul is, is sharing these things for the benefit of what the Corinthians were dealing with at that time. And I think that they're beneficial for us because we're still dealing with the same kinds of issues and difficulties in our life today. Paul looks back at the disaster that came to Israel because they worshipped idols and they engaged in sexual sin. Two things that the Corinthians struggled with and, and still things that are in our, in our world today. Paul tells us to look at the fate of Israel who sinned in these ways you know, if we, if we just pause for a moment here and we look back at, at several of the chapters and the topics that we've covered in 1 Corinthians, sexual sin has been a big one, right? We've kind of like gritted our teeth and said, oh boy, here we go again, because there were several chapters in a row where Paul had to really hit this thing head on because in Corinth, sexual sin was a huge deal. And we've, we've gone through this teaching, not trying to just, you know, quickly get through it, but, but understanding it fully because we want to make sure that in 2021, we're not falling victim to the same things that the Corinthians were or the Israelites were. So we just address these things head on and we understand, okay, Lord, yes, thank you for your design for what's supposed to happen in this area of our life. But the interesting thing is that many people assume idolatry is a thing of the past, right? After all, we don't have carved images and statues and things like that in our homes or around town or anything like that. But an idol isn't necessarily something that's sitting on a shelf. An idol can be anything that steals our devotion away from the Lord. And I think that's kind of the focus of, of chapter 10. So let's think this through for just a moment. I want to pause and just have a little discussion between you and me. What are some of the idols that can come between God and us today in 2021? Something that steals our heart or our worship or our devotion away from Jesus. Does anyone have an example maybe of what an idol might be today that people would struggle with? Yeah, Melissa. Social media. Huge time waster, right? Money. Money. I think there's a few others. Yeah, I believe that's true. I'm going to squeeze you guys for one more. Interesting, right? Yeah, family, the wrong priorities, the wrong focus. Thanks, Kent. Yeah, I, you know, I, I had a lot of the same things that you guys did. Um, I wrote down the very first false idol or an idol that steals our devotion away from God is ourselves. I think when we, when we go through life thinking about, well, what do I want to get out of today? What do I want to achieve in my lifetime? Haven't we then made ourselves our, the object of worship in our life instead of God? Money is certainly one, yeah. Hobbies, sports, entertainment, all of those things are good, but they shouldn't take the place of God in our lives. College, university, education, good things, yet... If they are over-prioritized, they can steal away the devotion we're, having, we're supposed to have for God. Work, career, advancement or promotion, 
children, kind of like you said with families there, Kent. You know, when I was a youth pastor, one of the greatest tragedies that I noticed was that parents worshipped their kids. Oh, what's that? You, you want to be on the sports team, Johnny? Yeah, let's, let's go for sure. What's that, Jenny? You want to go off to do this or that? Yeah, for sure. We don't have to go to church. Yeah, that's getting in the way anyway. Let's just go. Let's do whatever you want. Because your life, you should have everything that your little heart desires. What a dumb way to live, right? Like, if we're setting an example as, as Christian moms and dads for our kids, we could actually say, no, that's not the best thing for you. As a matter of fact, I think Jesus has something so much better that is going to give us joy in the long run. You know, it might break their little heart for a moment, but boy, oh boy, is that going to serve them well in the long run, right? Success, reputation, those are false idols. How about romantic love? How about placing a relationship ahead of Jesus? Absolutely. Self-image, the way that people perceive us, status or power, anything. Anything that we put ahead of Jesus, anything that we make more of a priority to following God. That has become an idol in our lives. I'm not saying this to drag us down, but just for us to have an understanding, it's like, oh, okay. So the idolatry that the Israelites were punished for thousands of years ago, and the idolatry that was a serious, serious issue in the city of Corinth almost 2,000 years ago, hasn't actually disappeared over time. It's not like out of sight, out of mind. It's actually more sinister today because we don't have a carved image. That idol is dwelling within our hearts, right? So we just want to be aware of these things. That's all I'm trying to say. So Paul continues here in verse 11. He says this. So these things happened to them, the Israelites, as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. That just means like we're living closer to the end than we ever have. So if you think you're standing firm, if you think your Christian life is just peachy, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common, what is ordinary for all people to struggle with, right? And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So the lesson is to learn from the past. People make mistakes by giving their heart away. They give their heart, their full attention to something that is not God. Oftentimes, it doesn't start like that, but people, especially in churches, we start with God. We're raised in church. It's like, yeah, my grandparents brought me. My parents brought me when I was a kid. And yeah, I'm not sure what happened after junior high. I just didn't go anymore. And something took the place of Jesus in my life. Rarely do we acknowledge that out loud, but that's usually the case. So often we tell ourselves, oh man, that'll never happen to me. We read this stuff in the Bible. We see about these crazy things that happen to Christians. Like, how could that guy be so good? How could King Saul be so good and then fall away from God and then actually call on a witch to, to find out the future of Israel? Like, how could he do that? That would never happen to me. Well, yes, it could. We're human. We have that in common with Saul. We are all susceptible to these things. So just to be aware of what's happened in the past to other people should teach us how to safeguard for the future. So yes, we have to be careful. We can't arrogantly act like we're immune to sin. We have to keep our guard up and stay alert or that temptation that is so sinister lurks around every corner and it wants to take us down. A woman was enjoying the sun and the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico as she relaxed on a large inflatable beach toy. 
When she realized that she had been swept about a half a mile away from the beach, she started to scream, but nobody heard her. A Coast Guard found her five miles from the place where she initially entered the water. She didn't pay attention to the danger that she was in until she was beyond her own strength and ability to recover. Like this woman, some of us are ignorant to the sin that is tempting us. We don't even recognize the dangers of it, right? We don't stay alert and we don't stand firm in Jesus and, and life just kind of causes us to slowly drift away. It's not like we're, we move from here to a million miles away from God in one moment. It happens over a long period of time. And that's why it's hard to identify. It's, it's good for us to stay alert each and every day. Because even in those moments when we realize, boy, oh boy, one moment I wake up, it's like my life is a gong show. I'm so far away from God. That's what happened to me when I was kind of in my early 20s. And I thought to myself, this didn't happen overnight. I looked back over the course of five years and I thought, what have I been doing? I, I wasn't raised like this. I know better. I actually love Jesus, but I haven't made him a priority at all. And my heart has drifted and drifted and drifted. And then there's people who actually make plans for disaster. They're not ignorant about what they're doing. They actually make plans to give in to temptation. Son, a father said sternly, don't swim in the river. Okay, dad, he answered. But the son came home that evening carrying a wet bathing suit. Where have you been, demanded the father. Well, swimming in the river, answered the boy. Didn't I tell you not to swim there, asked the father. Yes, sir, answered the boy. Well, why did you? Well, daddy explained, I had my bathing suit with me, and I just couldn't resist the temptation. Well, why did you take your bathing suit with you? Well, so I'd be prepared to swim just in case I was tempted. <laughs> Isn't this what we do? Isn't it just, it, like, we laugh. It's silly, totally, right? But... Isn't it like we know the one thing that we want to avoid, but somehow we fixate on it, and that's the one thing we actually do? Like, that's the thing that we give into because we know that we want it. We just don't know if we're prepared to try to resist it. So we just kind of are ready, just in case we want to give into that temptation. When it comes to temptation, God will not allow us to be tempted to the point where we have no choice but to sin. But there's a role that we have to play as well. God's going to say, okay, you're in this bad situation. Here's the escape route. Here's the exit with the big red sign. All you have to do is choose this direction, and this temptation will not overcome you. I am with you, and I'm going to show you the way out so that you can stand in your faith and that your joy will be complete. But that means that we can't carry a bathing suit around with us, right? We can't be ready to give into temptation, we have to be prepared to choose what the avenue is that God says is better. And I think Romans 13 verse 14 helps explain this idea. It says this, so rather, or rather than give into temptation, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Do you think that boy with the bathing suit was thinking about how to gratify his desires to go swimming? Absolutely. So in that analogy, it doesn't seem like he had clothed himself with the Lord Jesus. Abiding with Christ, daily spending time 
in his life-giving word and in fellowship with him through prayer. Those kinds of practices are what clothe us with the character and the strength so that we will long for Jesus instead of longing to gratify the desires of our flesh. You know, if I don't walk with Jesus in my life day to day, and then temptation comes along, I don't, I don't stand a chance. Because it's Jesus' word, it's fellowship with him that teaches me what's right and what's wrong. And that's what helps me stand. I can't stand on my own. Some people may say, Jeff, you're a pastor because you were so good. Actually, No. I have many stories of what could demonstrate just how merciful God has been rather than how righteous I was. I needed to abide with Christ desperately. I still do. And that's the only thing that saves us from temptation. 14. Therefore, my dear friends, this is Paul's advice, flee from idolatry. Anything that could steal our hearts away from Jesus. I I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. So Paul's talking about communion here. He's talking about what we're going to observe together today. He's teaching us about the effects of sharing in a sacred meal. The bread and the cup that we take together is a sign of our willingness to associate our lives with Jesus Christ. And we also understand that it unifies us together. That's why it says that we're supposed to take communion together. You come together to observe the Lord's Supper because it's a unifying practice. So what happens if someone joins in a sacred meal that is being offered to an idol and not to God? Isn't that an indication that they are willing to be joined together with whoever that food is being offered to and that they are unifying themselves with people who are worshiping that deity? That's exactly what's happening. So it's interesting, like we talk about idols and we don't have like these food sacrifices to false idols. Like we don't get together and we have a big food sacrifice to the God of sports or whatever, right? We don't have that sort of thing, but nonetheless, the time that we spend, the devotion that we give, it shows that our heart is unified towards one thing. And all of those idols that we talked about, they don't have to be idols. They can all be good things. I love sports, and I I hope you all enjoy sports on some level, playing, watching, whatever. But if it takes the place of God in our lives, that's not a good idea. So here's where it kind of gets interesting. In verse 18... Paul says this, he he helps us remember once again the people of Israel. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that the food sacrificed to the idol is anything or that the idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans, that's non-Christians, are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table, which is communion, and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So Paul cuts to the heart of the problem here. If a Christian participates in the worship that's for an idol by attending a banquet or a sacrifice that is given over to a false idol, that is a stark contradiction to the worship that that is meant to be reserved for God only. So this is the danger of spending time where we don't belong. 
This is the danger of giving our hearts over to things that do not lead us closer to Jesus. The worship of our heart is actually a precious thing to God. Some of us, I don't know, I don't know what it's like for you guys to come to church because I can't read your mind. But for me, I think about this. Would I ever go to another place and sing songs to, a, to something else, to, like, to glorify romance? No, so that's why I, that's why I listen to Christian music only. Not be, I'm not I'm not trying to condemn anyone, but for me, why would I sing a song? Why would I fill my mind with lyrics and messages that glorify a lifestyle that I am not at all in favor of? That's just something that I've chosen to do for myself. That's why I like the, the songs that I sing are Christian songs. That's just a choice that I made when I was a young man. I'm thankful that God helped me to make that choice because looking back, honestly, not, not many of my friends listen to Christian music, so I'm kind of surprised that I was able to do that by the Lord's strength. But the worship of our hearts is precious to God. Why would we do anything that we reserve for God here? Why would we take this and give it somewhere else to something else on another day during the week? The argument that Paul is in the middle of isn't about the food that was sacrificed, and it's not about the idol that it was even sacrificed to, but it's about the unfaithfulness of the heart. That's what he's trying to warn us against. Proverbs 4.23, one of my favorite verses in Scripture says, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Have you ever thought about that? Like, your heart, what you set your heart on, will literally determine how your life turns out. Like when, when I read that verse, and I, it's, it's a famous verse, it's a verse that I'm familiar with, I've read it many times, but every time it just grabs me. And it makes me wonder, like, Lord, my heart, like, I don't want it to be 95% for you and 5% for other things. I just want it to be 100% for you because I can't dream of going in another direction besides straight towards your throne, straight towards heaven, straight towards honoring you. Can you, can you, would you ever get in a boat that had a propeller at the back that had two fins on it and one was missing? It probably would be okay. You might go somewhere a little bit, but it wouldn't be a good ride. Or what, would you get into a vehicle that had a tire on one, of the, one side of the steer axle and not on the other? I wouldn't. It just doesn't make sense, right? Because you're divided. Or if you had a really bad alignment, hey, Raj, if, like your, if your tires were splayed out like this, it's one wants to pull this way and one wants to pull this way. I wouldn't bother getting in a car like that. It wouldn't be a good ride. It wouldn't be productive. It wouldn't be direct towards the destination that I wanted to go. So it's the same thing with our hearts, friends. It's okay for us to think practically about these things. Why would you follow your heart if it's divided between God and something else? Wouldn't you rather follow a heart that is full-on devoted, 100% for Christ, who loves you, who died for you, who is serving you and guiding you in your life for the best outcome possible. Just if we think about it in practical terms, doesn't that make sense? I think it does. Paul's main argument at this point is pretty much done. He's, he's touched on all the things that he wanted to to finish up his main argument that started at the beginning of chapter 8. But there's just a few loose ends here that he starts to tie up. And he does this by revisiting uh, an earlier principle that he talked about. So verse 23. Sorry, there we go. 
I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do, anyth- to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you, mu- and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says... This has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. And this is an interesting part. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom or your freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in a meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So this is a really interesting thing. It's, it's kind of rapid fire, and I'll just touch on a couple of points here. Basically, Paul's saying, once again, it's just a reminder. It's not about our rights and insisting on what we want to do with our lives, but it's about doing what's good for everyone. Go ahead and eat meat from the market without concern. Go ahead and buy stuff from the store without worrying, oh, where did this come from? Is this evil? Is this good? Just eat it. God prepared it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If you are invited to someone's house, don't ask where the meat came from. Don't raise those kinds of questions. Be a good guest. Go into their home and, and just enjoy the food that they've put in front of you. It's not a pagan sacrifice. It's just a meal with friends. But if someone then, because they have a burden on their conscience, if they lean over and say, hey, don't eat this stuff because this was given to an idol and it's a bad deal. Just, just you know, don't argue with them. Say, don't say, no, it's not a big deal. Idols are nothing. The, the sacrifice is nothing. Just be kind. Be generous. Be gracious. Say, okay, thanks for the warning. And then don't eat it, right? So some people are going to come to us in life with those kinds of warnings, and it's, it's okay for us to just say, hey, thanks for the heads up. And then we don't do what would be offensive to them as a courtesy to them. Paul wraps up chapter 10 saying this. this I love this. This is just a grand conclusion. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks, so those are people outside of the church, or to the church of God itself. Even as I try to please everyone, Christians and non-Christians, in this way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. I just love verses like this, because we see that Paul's reasoning for why he teaches these things is because he wants people to be saved. He wants people to be attracted to the life of a Christian, and to know the Lord Jesus for themselves. I want to share with you just a couple of thoughts. As I thought back over the last few chapters, I took some time to analyze how I make decisions in my own life. Because really what we're talking about in this chapter are the decisions that people made. The Israelites, the the decisions that the Corinthians were faced with, and the decisions that we're faced with today. We know that God is the one true God. We talked about that a few weeks ago, right? And we understand that he has a plan for our lives. Yet at the same time, through temptation, through the world that we live in, there's all sorts of different things that are tugging us in other directions. As the Israelites were roaming the, the wilderness for 40 years, they, they happened upon other cultures. They were thinking about the Egyptians that they spent 440 years with, right? So they, they spent a long time being uh, exposed to other ways of thinking. So the temptation was, well, these guys aren't wandering in the wilderness. They live in a rich land in Egypt. Why don't we just do what they did? 
And that's maybe why they made that golden calf at the bottom of Mount Sinai and decided to worship it, right? So we have to understand that we are in the culture, but we are not of this culture. We are of a heavenly culture, a kingdom culture that has such a better alternative for us. So that's why it's good for us to understand how are we making decisions Why do we do what we do? What is it going to lead to? Is this honoring to God? Is this glorifying to me? So I I want to share with you some of the things that I feel like God has shown me over the years and some of my mentors have taught me over the years when it comes to making decisions, some really good questions to ask. Because I think these are the things that are going to help us to test our heart and find out if we're making a decision from a heart that fully is devoted to Jesus or if something else has crept in and tried to steal us away from that devotion. So these are, if, if, I, if I move a little quick and some of these questions stand out to you, please, you can find me after the service. I'm happy to share them with you again. So one of the questions is this, when I'm faced with a decision, have I prayed and asked the Lord what would be the most honoring to him in this decision? And then a follow-up to that, have I taken the time to be still and listen for the answer to the question that I asked. Anyone can ask a question. But I think we serve ourselves so well when we stop and say, all right, Lord, I'm not going to move here until I, I understand from you what your desire is. Another question, is this decision beneficial only for me? Will this decision do good for someone else? Is it possible that I could hurt or offend a fellow believer with the the decision that I'm about to make. Do I know what the Bible says regarding this decision? Have I taken the time to look? Am I willing to follow what the Bible says regarding this decision? Sometimes we can know what the Bible says, but we're not exactly eager to follow it. That's a good question to ask our hearts, right? If I'm willing to follow the Bible regarding this decision, what should that look like? Here's a tougher one. If I'm not willing to follow the Bible with this decision, what does that say about my heart? Am I putting my happiness ahead of someone else's? Am I putting my happiness ahead of obedience to God? Am I looking for a way to give myself permission to do something that I know I shouldn't do? Am I looking for a way to honor God no matter what the cost? Jesus, what would be the most pleasing thing for me to do for you? You know, these kind of questions have been very helpful to me as I've been making decisions in my life. And I think it helps us when when we learn to ask things like this to guard ourselves against idolatry. Because if a decision is made to serve ourselves or if a decision is made to make someone else happy and not really God, then we know that, a, that an idol, a, a temptation has perked up in our lives that we need to address. And that's okay. Just in conclusion here, friends, before we take communion together, I, I don't want anyone to feel burdened by this teaching today. I don't want anyone to have a heavy heart because actually, looking back over this passage, I'm very, very thankful for it. Imagine if we, if we didn't have this teaching. Imagine if it didn't exist and we all lived... Just saying, well, this is what I want to do because I want to do what's best for me. And I don't care about these other things. And we didn't have this wonderful teaching about the the reality of, of idols popping up in our lives. Personally, I don't think I would be happy in my life without this teaching. 
I don't think any of us would. We'd be so concerned about self and living a selfish life that the joy of generosity or the joy of self-sacrifice and giving a life over to God, we wouldn't know anything about that. But I'm thankful today, and I hope that you are too, because we have a far superior, superior alternative to selfish living. We have a precious fellowship with Jesus that is worth protecting and holding on to. Just going to check real quick here before we take communion. Did, anyone, did everyone get one of these? If you didn't, just put up your hand. Chad, our, our usher is happy to bring you one if you need one. I think we're doing all right. All right. So one of, the, one of the interesting parts about this passage is that Paul gave us a teaching about what communion is. It's something that unifies us to our God because we show in our hearts and a willingness to take communion and observe the body and the blood of Jesus. We show that, yeah, absolutely. We know who Jesus is. We have accepted his love for us. We are trusting in him. We are devoted to him. We want to be joined to him. And it also shows that we want to be joined to the other people in the body of Christ. So sometimes people tell me these kinds of things like, I don't know what to think about when we take communion. I know we're supposed to be quiet and maybe think about Jesus dying on the cross and that kind of thing. And that's fine. That's totally good. But today I would invite you to think about this. Think about the condition of your own heart. Think about your life, and what you desire for it to be. And maybe your life's in a really good place. But just continue to think about, Jesus, you gave your whole life for me. And that's what I'm remembering right now. Help me to continue to give my whole life for you. Or Jesus, would you show me the things in my life that are not for you? Because I want to cut those things out. Because what we've talked about today, this full devotion to you with no idols getting between you and me. That actually sounds marvelous. And I want to walk towards that. So I hope you all had a chance to peel back that top layer and get out your little biscuit. So next, uh, in the next little while, or next chapter, I believe, we're actually going to, we're going to look at the passage that we typically look at for communion where, where Paul recollects what happened in the upper room He says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a a loaf of bread and he broke it. And giving thanks to God, he said, this is my body. My whole life, which I'm giving to you. Because God has asked me to do this. Because my Lord has sent me here to be a great example to you of what pure and holy devotion is to God. And I invite you to remember what pure and holy devotion is every time we eat this together. Remember my sacrifice and remember the life I'm calling you to live as well. I know that in in church, we we talk about the word covenant. We've talked about how it's a promise. It's like a guarantee. And it's something that exists between us and God. But you think about a covenant, it's a two-way street, isn't it, right? 
Like God made this covenant to us. But if we don't acknowledge it and reciprocate, the covenant actually is void of meaning. Which is a scary thought. Because I want the greatest promise ever made to be the greatest promise ever made. I want it to matter in my life. But I think that when our heart is divided and when we, we fall victim to temptation and giving room for idols in our lives, we're saying like the covenant isn't exactly the greatest covenant ever made. We, we've found something that threatens it. So when we take this, this drink together today, let's just remember the wonderful promise. And even if we stray away, even if we're like that person who floated out to sea, we drifted away from safety and the protection of a heart that's fully devoted to God and a God who takes care of that kind of heart, just remember that God's like that Coast Guard. He finds us no matter how far away we've drifted and he restores us because his covenant is good yesterday, today, and forever. Isn't that good, friends? Like, that's something I want to remember, and that's something I want us to be celebrating today. So Jesus, after supper, he took a cup, and he wanted to signify this importance of this covenant with his disciples. And he said, this cup is, is symbolic of my blood, which makes the promise that I'm making to you, makes it real, it seals it, it makes it permanent, it's irreversible, it's eternal. If you trust in this covenant, your life will never be the same, and it will be all for the better. Let's remember this amazing covenant together. Let's pray to close our service. Holy Spirit, I thank you so much that you are with us today. We trust that what is meant to stand out to us from this passage of 1 Corinthians 10, we trust that you would help it to stand out to us. We trust that your mercy and your grace are going to be ever-present for the times where temptation gets the best of us, where an idol pops up in our lives, and we turn our hearts away from you. But Jesus, collectively, as your church, as people who have been recipients of your covenant, we say, we're so sorry. We never meant for those things to happen. We didn't wake up one day and say, okay, I think I'm just going to turn off the Christian button today, and I'm just going to do my own thing. Jesus... That's not our heart's desire. As your church, we just, we tell you this, we love you. And we want to be devoted to you. But we need your help. We know that temptation is, is lurking around so many corners in this life, Father God. So please help us to resist. Help us to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, with the character of your Son, Help our hearts and our minds to be pointed towards heaven that we may dwell in your presence daily. And that you will protect us from being swept out to sea of temptation. God, thank you that you taught us these things today. I know I feel convicted right now in this moment. I don't feel, I don't feel worthy to preach this message. 
But you, Father God, are worthy. And that's where we just want to give our praise right now. Friends, as we're quiet, I think this would just be appropriate. Take 30 seconds now, just in the quietness of your heart, to pray and tell God about how devoted you want to be to him. It all comes from the heart, Jesus. Any good thing that we could possibly do comes from our heart. So I pray, Father, that you would help us as we endeavor to protect our hearts and reserve them only for you. Amen.